Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I hope you had a good lunch. Just to remind you that you can watch these sessions or hear them on audio or as a podcast on the SOCPA website that is SOCPA.ca. And there's a suggestion box in the lobby for ideas or comments. Uh, I should also mention to you about next week's talk before we go on. Next week's talk is Civil Liberties, Are They at Risk? And this will be the two uh, winners of the SACPA Speakers Challenge at the University of Alberta. The speakers will be Raul Vergara and Sandin Law. So these are two students from the University of Lethbridge. Okay, um, we will ask you to, when you go to the microphone, to keep your comments brief. Limit yourself to one or two questions. And no questions from the floor. Once you've asked your question, to go back to your seat and to state your name. Okay, but before we start fielding questions, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to give some comments about what's happening now after this survey has ended. So let's welcome our speakers, Robin and LaVon, back to the podium. Okay. Well, Beth has just asked me to discuss a little bit with you about the five-year project, the EDI project that has come to an end. Now we have all this wonderful data, not so wonderful for Albertans, I guess, but we now know what the issues are. Uh, the government has yet to announce what they plan to do about it, and that's one of my big concerns. So we had always uh, been working under the impression that they would continue the project, and we kept hearing that they were considering it, and it sh we should hear an announcement by November of last year, and when we did get an announcement, it was quite the opposite of what we were expecting. The announcement was the project had ended, and there was no future plan in place as far as we could determine for what we were going to do as a province to address the issues that had been identified by this survey. So, to this date, I have... we. Well, many of us have written letters to the Premier, to the Ministers of Human Services, Education, and Health, and we all got a form letter back that said the project was funded for five years and it's over. And that's all the letter said. So I was alarmed that they didn't outline what their future plan might be. And I think that uh, as a person who has seven grandchildren who could all benefit from more support in the family, that we need to, we need to do something about that. Okay, Levant. So one of the things that they have done, so just to follow up, that um, in response to a lot of the concerns that actually did go up, the province did respond and said, okay, we're going to actually uh, continue to fund the coalitions for a bridging year. So what they've done is that they've offered the coalitions uh, some funds in from starting from January 1, although they don't have funds in the bank yet. They've just got a promise of funds, um, so that they continue the work <coughs> until the end of December. Um, they're also looking at potentially 
uh, putting into place um, some supports to be able to help the coalitions continue to do the good work that they're doing. Um, and I do want to take just a moment and introduce Donna Cushman. Donna. Donna is the, uh, comes from our Lethbridge Early Years Coalition, and she is the Early Child Development Coordinator here. So she is one of the ones who has now taken the lead. She's just only a couple of weeks into her project, so do ask her lots of trick questions. I want to see how she fields them. Um, she, so she's just brand new, but she has been uh, one of the ones that's actually hired to continue to do the good work here in Lethbridge. So that's part of the, the work that's continuing to happen here in the city. Um, we are concerned, though, because when we look at the project, I was able to bring you a lot of the information in regards to uh, the numbers and the data, et cetera, and so on. But it's easy enough for us to bring information to the coalitions to be able to roll it out. But what's not currently being funded or what we have no idea of whether it's going to be funded or not is are they going to continue to collect the early development instrument? A baseline is only as good as the information that we collect afterwards. So one of the things that we need to know as a community is as we're implementing and doing things differently, is this making a difference? And without con the continuation of the collecting of the data, it's very difficult for us to be able to determine whether or not we're actually having an impact or not. So I think the government needs to hear that the data is, is great and we need that data. And we also need to continue to collect the data so we see if the work that we're doing has an impact. So that's one of our question marks for the government is are you going to continue to collect the data? And the other question mark is, is are you going to then put it back in the hands of the community? Um, it's one thing to collect the data at, a, at that, that higher level like they've done across... Um, other provinces of, of Canada, but it's another thing to give it to the community where the actual action is taking place so that they know whether or not it's had an impact. Um, in addition to that, we've had a lot of, uh, a huge team that's actually been behind us in regards to not only looking at the data, but evaluating the data and actually looking at the impact that different things have had, such as socioeconomic information as well as the resources. So without that team that actually is doing the data analysis, it's really difficult for us to then bring it back to the community. So a big portion of our team and a big portion of the work that's been done um, has now been cut out of the picture. So I'm a little bit concerned about, it's great having the coalitions at the ground level, but without them getting the information that they need to move forward, it's, it's going to... One of their coalitions actually said it's like coming to work and not having a computer to do anything that you've done for the past, you know, five years. And so it, it said they're really feeling like it's tying their hands. It's great. They appreciate the money's coming in, but they're also having a question mark in regards to where do we go from here. I just want to say it looked like bribe money to me <laughs> because we got the announcement that we could get 22500 at the same time, we got the announcement that they were, in, were not going to continue the project. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's interesting. We're going to give coalitions money and then cut off the head of the organization that actually got the coalitions going and inspired them to start acting in the communities. And so I really, I really felt it looked like bribe money, but we're not above accepting bribes. So we went ahead and applied for that anyway. <coughs> okay. <coughs> Thank you, ladies. We'll go on to the questions now. Okay, first questioner. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Maria Fitzpatrick, and um, I'm going to start with a little comment, and I said it to you at the table. I've just finished 32 and a half years working in corrections, and I saw in corrections everything that you described in terms of the negatives of not having uh, early childhood good, stable care. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, there are many, many damaged people in our community, and many of those damaged people are having children who will also be damaged. Uh, 
So uh, does the uh, group look at um, how c we can be more involved in terms of correcting this? Um, well, we know these adverse childhood experiences do tend to transmit generation to generation. People raise their children the way they were raised unless they learn differently. We have parent link centers in Alberta who are there to provide parent coaching opportunities for families, and they do a fabulous job. But they have to actually seek out that information in order for it to make a difference. We're hoping that schools will start asking the adverse childhood experiences questionnaires. We hope that doctors will start asking these questions so they can identify families, people at risk, and families at risk. And then we can start to address, as a society, how we can support them so they can understand that their health and their mental health, their physical and mental health issues may arise from what happened to them, not because they're innately bad or they made poor choices, but what happened to them, and then try to go forward from there in making their lives happier and healthier as a result of them understanding retrospectively that much of this stuff just happened to them. They had, they, they had the bad luck of the draw, so... <coughs> I'm just wanting to add to that, and um, those of you who have heard me speak before, I've actually referred to the fact that a lot of the states down in the U.S. are actually determining how many jail cells to build based on kindergarten results. So we actually know that there's a direct correlation. We just need to do something about it. And so I think it's, it's, it behooves us to be able to make sure that we're doing things uh, right from the start. Um, the other thing I'm just going to add to what Robin had talked about is that one of our recommendations or of the six that are out there um, are that we actually look at making sure our early childhood programs, um, those that work with our young children, actually have an increase in, in their education so that they actually can continue to do the good work. Now, our province, because of all of the cutbacks, um, a lot of our provincial um, early childhood programs have had to cut back from two years to one year. And so what we're actually saying is we're heading in the opposite direction. We really need to make sure that all of those who are working with our young children actually have the education that they need to support. So when you're talking about being able to support those that are already really struggling, and oftentimes they're actually go to our child care centres where they're doing an amazing job. My hat's off to our child care centres. They're doing the best that they can. They provide phenomenal supports, um, not just here locally but also provincially. But they're really struggling because they're struggling to try and find qualified staff. And we need to be able to make sure that we can continue to support that and ask and tell our government we have to have that second year back. Matter of fact, if it was up to me, if I ran the world... Levon for premier. Um, I'm actually. Th I, what we really need to do is actually um, look at making it even a higher level than even a, a two-year. But right now, we're even having a hard time getting a, enough with, with a one-year or two-year to be able to work in the field. So, uh, I'm Trevor Page. Uh, good on SAGPA for um, addressing the needs, or some of them, of young children. We keep saying that uh, we need better politicians, and certainly this is the time to start. I was uh, struck that in, your, in the first presentation and in the video, there didn't seem to be a reference to nutrition, oh, yes. both in the fetal stage and in the zero to five age group. Those of us in the, new, in the business, in my case with the UN, really consider that extremely important. Mm -hmm. Um, on the survey, did you include First Nations, the reserve, the blood reserve? 
And um, when you compare Lethbridge with Canada, other, is the Canada figure include those on reserves, First Nations? I mean, there's an enormous difference. It is. A, it is a big difference. Um, so one of the one of the difficulties when we're actually looking at um, bringing in the EDI in both in um, provincially is looking at the difference of our school system. So oftentimes on reserve schools there's actually a federal jurisdiction, whereas this is a as a provincial piece. So um, we were very fortunate to be able to work with um, one of our First Nations communities in the north and they actually did work it as a pilot. So we have we're able to gather some information there. Um, if we had actually hoped to continue to do this work and they were one of the ones that we were going to bring on board. With the numbers that we have right now is that um, one of the things that I didn't say is that the, when we did the survey, the surveys were actually done at the kindergarten at the school, but they were actually mapped back to the community with where they lived. And so if our, if our First Nations children actually attended school and they lived within the community, we did collect that data. But if they actually uh, lived on, on reserve, unfortunately, uh, we were not able at this time to be able to capture their, that snapshot within this framework. We did hope that, um, and that's one of the reasons why we ran that pilot up in the north part of our province, we were hoping that would be our next step as actually when we headed into ECMAP 2.0. Great question. Oh, and the piece about nutrition. If I had a, 10 more minutes, you would have seen my top five <laughs> factors for supporting healthy brain development. And lifestyle is the last piece, and making sure uh, nutrition is adequate to support healthy brain development. Because we know that's not just true for development. People need to maintain great nutrition throughout their lifespan to keep their brain working properly. Mitchell, I just wanted to follow up on the last question, and because uh, I bel I live in that underprivileged area of South Lethbridge, and uh, there's no doubt that the uh, Aboriginal population in that area is much larger than certainly in the west side. I'm not sure about the north. And my, my question doesn't relate to that. I'd like to look a little beyond things, or always looking at. Uh, where you but you mentioned self-control and discipline as being important factors in childhood development. And this then brings me, ironically, to Bill 51. And these uh, yahoos who decide they're going to go with this Islamic State, and what, what is there in their childhood that brings this up? And maybe if you could use that as a, as a as a hook to the government to say, let's look beyond just the simple things and the, the legal aspect of trying to condemn these people. And what, I wonder, what is your question? I'm just wanted to know what, what, whether you think there is a, might be a relationship between early childhood development and the problem we're having with the so-called terrorists. Well, I actually do think there probably is a link to a certain degree because many of those people come from areas where there's a lot of civil unrest and disruption and less uh, that safety, that protection that children need to feel. I think, I think it's horrifying to see how many young children are, are inducted into armies in certain countries of the world and are taught to use weapons very early on and taught to not feel anything for their uh, fellow man. And um, other than that, I really... I don't have much to say, but it, it does seem to me that uh, a lot of the roots of these uh, terrorist kinds of organizations 
can arise when there is civil unrest, when there is war, and uh, children, in my view, uh, should never have to endure that. And we continue to make life hard for children all around the world by our political choices and and the civil unrest there. Uh, I have a granddaughter who's seven, and she just learned about the Second World War in school, and at Remembrance Day, she was inconsolable for days when she found out what happened to some of the children in those areas in Europe in the Second World War. She doesn't even know the rest of the story. It was just a loss of innocence for her that kept her alarmed that there are children her age that had to suffer the kinds of things that they do in various areas in the world. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. What my, my concern is the decision for the parameters of this particular uh, research. Uh, was it Alberta Health who determined the 25th percentile as the bottom level? Because to me, that's leaving out a whole lot of children that are in the school system. And it seems to me like it would skew the results to look better than they really are. Who made that decision, and do you agree? Yeah, um, the, the numbers that you saw are actually a reflection of how well the children did on a standardized test. So children were, uh, no one made the decision for those numbers as what would be the cutoff. It just so happens that it falls around that 24%, 25% of, uh, that you're referring to. So all children are assessed at all these levels, and then they are compared against norms uh, compiled. And this EDI, by the way, is used across the world. It's not just in Canada. It has been used successfully across the world, and they have some pretty good understanding of what those results mean as far as child development goes. So um, I don't know that I fully understood the question, but it seems to me that no one's made a decision that it would be 25% that we start wor- when we start worrying about if children are succeeding. But I agree that... Th- our goal should be 100% on all five parameters and uh, that we're doing even less well than Canada's abysmal average. (laughs) I think that that's cause for alarm and and we need to do something about it. My name is Knut Peterson. Um, Thanks very much for coming today. Um, My question relates to... uh, Maybe not so much what Alberta is doing wrong, but what what is the other province is doing right to uh, do better on these? Uh, as far as as far as you know, uh, what are they doing right in Ontario, for example, or other places where they do better? You might get both of us up here having conversations about this. I think one of the things across the province that we can see the differences are um, is looking at what are the supports for young children, Um, certainly looking at uh, supports for for maternal health as well as supports for um, what's happening for if if they return, like if when parents return to work for so that a a solid child care uh, system, um, looking at what are, what's the community doing and how are they supporting. And so I think there's some pieces that we can learn from uh, provincial 
especially from other provinces. Um, we, most of us, I'm sure, have heard about Quebec, Quebec's uh, $5 a day childcare and stuff, and that has in and of itself some, some complications. But I think the biggest piece with that is that they're actually looking at what can they do to be able to support communities and support families at that level. So. Um, Ontario has been a leader in Canada for a number of years looking at early childhood. They've, Fraser Mustard was a Canadian mover and shaker in that field. And the early years reports came with Margaret McCain out of uh, Ontario. Um, I, I actually don't know what their results are on this, this data. Do you know? I, there is a Pan-Canada report. Okay, um, but but, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't come out well ahead, and that might be what's drawing the Canadian average down from Alberta. I know BC is struggling as well, so is we're not unique in this regard. But I do want to. Sh one thing we haven't had a chance yet to really sh share in detail is a project that's going on here in Lethbridge, and. Um, a few years ago, we were invited to come to Edmonton and hear about Frontiers of Innovation projects, which Harvard University has been supporting. And Harvard at that time had identified Alberta as a potential site for innovation for children. And in Alberta, they identified three communities. One was Fort McMurray, one was Central Edmonton, and Lethbridge was the third community. They had heard about the good work that was already happening in the coalitions and the people who were coming to the table trying to make a difference for children. So they became very interested in how we might act if we were given this designation. Now, it hasn't happened yet. We're still working on, on trying to figure out how this project is going to run, but we actually have started as of January this year, and we have our school boards on board. We have some daycares on board who are uh, providing high-quality child care as well. And then we have um, health. We have representation from mental health. We have representation from a variety of the, the supports in Lethbridge. And we're, what we're hoping to do is provide that necessary support for children and their families. So at any time when a family is describing a time of need, that there's someone there who can support them and help them through that troubled time. And then we're also hoping that parents will communicate with each other about the new learnings that they've, they've heard about and support each other in ways that will reconnect our communities. So it's brand new. We're just starting to get the data. Uh, we have 20 families who've signed up for our project in the two school districts, and we have a variety of... Um, of games that the children will play, and we get some understanding of how their executive function is developing. We'll get an understanding of the protective factors of resilience in the family, a variety of things. But I'm excited that we are trying to do something we need to draw in our community. And that's, I think, the next big step, is to try to make sure everyone sees how they can contribute to the success of this project. And if we can do that, then we truly will have a, a community that's making a difference for children. Uh, hi, I'm Michelle Walker, and I've worked in childcare for a long, long time. What I, it was just interesting that just right above the advertisement for this today was um, an, uh, just a little blurb from um, uh, Sports Canada, and they said that children one to four um, were doing fine physically that um, with the amount of exercise they were having. Five to 11 were failing, and that's in Canada, right? And I find that in the school system, there's a push for academics, and we know that children learn differently, and what they've cut out is the music program, the drama programs. Um, 
kindergarten children probably go to the, get, get outside activity or in a gym activity perhaps once a week. You know, and we know that's bad, and we know that children concentrate better if some of that excess energy is used up. And I just, I just like a push for um, that we need children to be active physically. I think it helps everything. That wasn't really a question, just a comment. It builds executive function, too. So air traffic control, you can build just by providing exercise opportunities for children. And if it's sports, all the better. So I'm just going to, sorry, just sorry. real quick, I'm just going to add to that is one of the things our coalition is doing to recognize one of that pieces is that because of um, our weather, and I, although although we're right now in January and August, because I have not seen weather like this in, in southern Alberta in forever, um, we are looking at creating um, uh, indoor gyms and roving gyms for families to go to. So anyone within the community, it's going to be free. We're hoping the children will just come out, the parents will just come out and play. And that's one of the initiatives that the coalition... Um, um, is implementing right here in the city, and it's it's based on that recognition that we did really need to. And although there's a hesitation for parents to get out when the weather's bad, we're doing the roving gyms usually from the time the weather gets bad till spring, and then we're really encouraging the families to get out and about. And then hopefully we're doing uh, meet and greets in the park so that they can continue that. Uh, not only are the parents getting able to connect and and get together, but it's also giving their children a chance to just run and be free. And hopefully that's part of what's sending the message in regards to this is critically important. For, for our children, not only for their health, but for their brain development. Thanks, Michelle. Sorry. Uh, hello. I just had a question about... So, I'm sorry, Carol Bangston. And I had a question about the people that you'd sort of dropped off your list, the severely handicapped people, disabled, whatever you want to call them. Um, my question on that kind of thing is, when you do that, it, it does skew the data because those people are in our community. And so we do have to have them in the community and in the data. Did you keep the data for that? And how do we compare to the rest of Canada with that kind of data? Yeah, and one of the, the pieces we we didn't want to people... So we were really cautious and careful with this. So I, it's a fantastic question. I just didn't have enough time to really give you a big, big picture in regards to the, to the project. Um, we did collect that data, and we weren't able to give it back to the community at a community level because it was too easy to identify individual children when we did it that way. But we've kept the data, and we're actually just about ready to launch our special needs report. So we can actually give a snapshot at, at how those children are doing and um, continue to look at how better we can support them within our communities too as well. So we did think it was important to bring it out, to, to pull them out, just because that would then allow us to compare apples to apples Canada-wide because that's one of the ways that they actually collected the data. Um, and also because it gives us a better snapshot in regards to how do we better support. So we haven't lost it. We are uh, That report should be coming out soon with the next, hopefully, month or two. And um, hopefully then we can encourage the government to, to look at that and figure out what, how, where do we go from here. Great question. I just wanted to point out that <clears throat> one of our members on our core group for the Frontiers of Innovation Initiative uh, was telling us that she has two preschool classes in her school that she's responsible for, 26 children, 25 of them are funded for special needs. Only one is typically developing. And so I think we don't know the magnitude of the problem because we have excluded the data on so many children who, who need a lot of support. So I think the problem is even bigger than we're recognizing here. Or let's not call it a problem. Let's call it a challenge, an opportunity. 
Hi, my name is Karen Tui. Uh, it's a little off topic, but I was wondering, what's your opinion on teaching sign language to normal children, on, you know, babies or... I don't have any. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, I just read a paper about this the other day, so <clears throat> I feel like I'm an expert now. Uh, <clears throat> the data have, have been sort of all over the map about whether or not this helps a child's communication skills and whether it will help them advance their, their vocabulary and their, their reading skills and so on and so forth in the language that they eventually learn, the spoken language. And it is something that now has been carefully researched and the answer was it doesn't do anything for spoken language, but if you think it's worth your time and effort to teach them sign language and you feel you can communicate better and the child is communicating with you because they, they can learn it, then go ahead. But it's probably not going to make a big difference to their eventual use of language and their literacy skills later in life. <laughs> And I was kind of surprised at that because I, I've been of the idea that anything that's enriching and enhances communication will enhance relationship, and enhancing relationship will enhance uh, brain development. But this was a meta-analysis of many, many studies that have been done now on teaching baby sign language. And it comes back to this, I think, that why are we trying to teach babies? <laughs> why aren't we just loving them and enjoying them? Because they're going to get lots of time for instruction later on. <laughs> And we can model all kinds of things that are good for their brain development that look more like play than teaching. And, uh, and I'm not trashing teaching, by the way, just in case it sounded like I might be. But, but really what I'm, I'm saying is, uh, just as that one uh, person who asked a question said, that we're not paying enough attention to our arts and our physical activity and all of those things. A lot of, a lot of emphasis has been placed on academics, and we see that children who have this early exposure for teaching and learning academics don't do as well in school uh, at the end of the day as children who have lots of play opportunities and develop those social relationships and develop their brain as a result. Knut, do you have a that, that ties right into my next question, and that is related to uh, electronic devices. Can you, do you have an opinion on, upon that? Yeah, you, you've hit all of the key buttons. Uh, electronic devices. Um, it's not recommended at all that children under the age of two have any exposure to electronic devices or television. And many, many parents are so proud that their children can run an iPad from the time they're nine months old and so on and so forth. But Levon and I were just at a session in October sponsored by Alberta Family Wellness Initiative and the, the one of the speakers was talking about sex addictions and how the internet has made it so easy to become addicted to pornography and sex. And it starts in our children at a very early age. And he proposed, and he says he had scientific evidence, that children who have more exposure to those electronic devices in their early developing years are at higher risk for developing these kinds of addictions, which nobody wants their children to go through. In the U.S., he was talking about a young person who at 12 was incarcerated with no possibility of parole for looking at nude pictures of other children because it was child pornography. 
And because they haven't really thought through the laws, he was looking at children his own age and curious, as boys are, about what happens here. But because of the laws, his family have no hope to, for him ever to be let out of the, the, um, the judicial system. And so we need to actually start talking about these things and make it something that we can comfortably talk about and come to rational decisions about because we have an upcoming generation who could be at a very high risk for developing these kinds of addictions. And I know lots of families who just say no to electronics, and those children are developing just fine. And they get enough of the exposure to computers at school that they're not lagging behind their, their fellow classmates. Do you have more to add, Lamar? I'm just going to add a quick note that there actually is a lot of research out there that when our children are exposed to those um, early electronics, especially prior to the age of two, it's actually rewiring the brain and not in a healthy way because what's actually happening on the screen happens so, so quick. And in real life, things don't move that that fast. And so they're actually finding that their comfort zone is that screen time. And they're having more and more difficulties in actually being able to interact in the real world because it's not moving quick enough. So um, there is huge concerns. There's lots of research out there. There's lots of different schools of thought in regards to that. I think um, that we need to really be aware of that we need to be cautious with the use of electronics, definitely. It's just like anything. In moderation, it maybe has its place, but you don't let it go unmonitored. And someone, I guess it was at that conference as well, compared it to uh, the Diet Coke of relationship. There's no calories behind it. So these, <laughs> these, uh, these students are developing a relationship with their electronic device and failing to develop relationships with people. And uh, we don't need that kind of... Uh, we, we need people who are truly connected to others so we can develop our society in positive ways. Well, join with me in thanking our great